0: Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable for now and into the future. So let's get started.
1: Hi, this is Bryce from Precision Nutrition, and today I'm reading the article. The Surprising Truth About Sugar, Here's Everything You Need to Know About What It Does to Your Body, by Brian St. Pierre and Krista Scott-Dixon. Worried you're eating too much sugar? Wondering how much is safe to eat? Or whether it's bad for you, no matter what? It's time we took a clear-headed look at the topic. It's time you heard the truth about sugar. Is sugar good? Is sugar bad? It's hard to know for sure these days. Which is interesting, because sugar is a fundamental molecule in biology. Human bodies need sugar. Sugar makes up the backbone of our DNA. It helps power our cells, helps store energy for later. Plants convert sunlight into sugar, and we convert sugar into fuel. Molecules like glucose and fructose, just two of the many types of sugar, are so basic to our biological needs, even bacteria love them. Indeed, sugar is the breakfast of champions, chemically speaking. Yet, somewhere along the way, sugar became the bad guy. Why did we start hating on sugar? When did we start wanting to purge it from our bodies? And why do some of us fear it so much? At this point, do we just need a little relationship counseling? Or is it a toxic relationship? Is it time to part ways? The truth is, this is a difficult conversation to have, because almost all of us are emotionally invested in our position on sugar. Talking about it brings up a lot of controversy and intense debate, even among scientists who are supposed to be, quote-unquote, objective. So why not step back and take a fresh look? In today's article, we'll explore five key questions about sugar. Namely, does sugar cause obesity? Does sugar cause us to gain weight or fat? Does sugar cause diabetes? Does sugar cause cardiovascular disease? And how much sugar is okay to eat? Yes, we're biased too. At Precision Nutrition, we generally consider ourselves nutritional agnostics. Case in point, our view on the absolute best diet. You can see an article on that at precisionnutrition.com forward slash best dash diet. We help people become their healthiest, fittest, strongest selves in a way that works for their unique lives and bodies. In our work with nearly 50,000 clients, we've learned a few things, such as that one size doesn't fit all that an all-or-nothing approach doesn't work for most people. That fitness and health habits should be doable on your worst day, not just your best. So, here's our bias in this article. We follow the complexities of nutrition evidence as best we can, always interpreting them through the lens of How does practice X or Y work for us, for the clients we coach, and for the fitness professionals we certify? Does said practice help us make our food choices wiser, saner, and simpler? Does it address individual differences between people? And if not, how can we help adapt each person's diet to match their unique needs? You can ask yourself these same questions as you go through the article. And of course, feel free to come to your own conclusions. But first, let's get to know our sugars. So what is sugar? Well, most of us think of sugar as the white stuff we put in coffee, or maybe what makes up 90% of those colored marshmallow cereals. However, Sugar is actually a group of molecules that share a similar structure. So we might actually call them sugars, plural. This group includes lots of members, such as glucose, fructose, sucrose, aka table sugar, which is glucose plus fructose, maltose, which is glucose plus glucose, galactose, and lactose, which is galactose plus glucose, and it's found in dairy, and so on. Sugars naturally occur in biology and in most foods, even if just in trace amounts. For example, here's what the breakdown of sugars look like in a banana. You'll have 13% dietary fiber, 26% starch, 12% sucrose, 0.5% maltose, 24.5% glucose, and 24% fructose. Now, there's of course much more sugar in processed and refined foods than in less processed and unrefined foods, and we'll come back to this important point in a moment. Now, sugars live under the larger umbrella of carbohydrates. Along with the sweet stuff, this macronutrient group also includes starches, like in potatoes or rice, fiber, like the husks of whole grains, and structural building blocks, like chitin, which makes up the shells of crustaceans, or cellulose, which makes up things like the trunks of trees. The more complex the molecule, the slower it digests. Sugars, which are simpler, digest more quickly. Starches and fiber, which are bigger, more complicated molecules, digest more slowly, if at all. This is why eating more fiber can help us feel fuller longer. Now, most carbohydrates are actually broken down into simpler sugars once they're digested. Other carbohydrates, such as insoluble fiber, don't really get broken down nor absorbed fully, although our intestinal bacteria often love munching on them. So, sugars are a type of carbohydrate, but not all carbohydrates are sugars. And some carbohydrates break down quickly or easily into sugars and others don't. This point is important to understand because it tells us that not all carbohydrates do exactly the same things in our bodies. Evolution has helpfully given us the ability to taste sugar. Sugar Sugar-type molecules react with receptors on our tongue, which then tell our brain, om nom 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 delicious, Sugar tastes good to us because, in nature, sweet foods, like fruits, are often full of good stuff like vitamins, minerals, and energy. But we differ in our physiology and behavior. In all things, humans are diverse and variable. Some of us like and seek out sugar more than others. And this may be genetic, or we may have learned it as we grew up, or both. For example, some of us like sugar in small doses. We can only eat a little before pushing the dessert plate away, while others like it a lot. The more we eat, the more we want. The idea of too much sugar doesn't compute. Likewise, some of our bodies seem better suited to sugar than others. For example, some of us can eat sugar all day long and feel fine, while others can only tolerate a little bit before our pancreas, which secretes insulin, a hormone that helps sugar get into the cells, tells us to knock it off. In general, most of us like at least some sweetness. When we're young, we tend to like sweetness more and avoid bitter foods more. Yet each person's response to sugar and sweet taste is unique. And with that said, let's get back to the questions at hand, starting with question number one, does sugar cause obesity? The term obese or overweight is like sugar, a contentious thing. In this article, we'll use it just for the purpose of discussion, so bear with us. The World Health Organization defines obese as having a body mass index higher than 30. Of course, some fit athletes like heavyweight boxers or rugby players might have a higher BMI, but still have a low body fat percentage. However, for most folks, having a BMI higher than 30 signifies that they have a higher than average level of body fat. Indeed, some studies that correlate BMI with body fat testing suggest that BMI may even underestimate how much body fat a person has. When it comes to obesity, there have always been people who are heavier and or who have more body fat than most other folks like them. However, over the last several decades, Quote-unquote average people in industrialized countries have gotten heavier, bigger, and gained more body fat fairly rapidly. It's now statistically normal. Now, although this shift is happening worldwide, and there are some differences by ethnic group and socioeconomic class, it's particularly noticeable as a general trend in the United States. And we have a chart on obesity rates in the United States in today's article online. Make sure to check it out at precisionnutrition.com forward slash truth dash about dash sugar. Now along with body weights, we can look at changes in body fat percentage and overall fitness levels. Here we also see that over time, body fat percentage has gone up and fitness levels have gone down. Currently in the United States, the average body fat percentage for men is around 28% and the average for women is around 40%. For comparison, in general, 11 to 22% for men and between 22 and 33% body fat for women is considered a healthy range. Lower than that is still healthy to a point, but generally considered athletic or lean. You can see another chart about the percentage body fat in US adults online today's article as well. Again, that's at precisionnutrition.com forward slash truth about sugar. So does increased sugar consumption explain body weight trends? Could sugar be responsible for changing body weights and body compositions in industrialized countries? Well by reviewing the data from the USDA Economic Research Service, National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, as well as food frequency questionnaires from the long-running Framingham Heart Study, we can track food intake from multiple angles. These varying streams of data all show fairly consistent trends. They tell us that, since 1980, Americans continue to eat the same total amount of fat, though they generally ate less naturally occurring fats, like in whole fat dairy and ate more added fats like oils. And they ate more carbohydrates, especially refined ones that included added sugars. So as a percent of total calories consumed, fat dropped, but we didn't end up eating less fat. We just added more sugar and other carbs on top of the fat we were already eating. This added up to approximately 200 to 400 extra calories per day. In terms of calories, that's like eating an extra McDonald's hamburger or a double cheeseburger on top of your existing meals every day. Whether those calories came from sugar is probably irrelevant. This increased energy intake alone, combined with the decreasing rates of daily physical activity, is probably enough to explain people getting heavier. Now you might be thinking, yes, but how might sugar play a role? Well, we can't say that sugar specifically was the culprit behind the obesity surge for everyone. Remember, humans vary. But our increased sugar consumption does seem to correlate with continued obesity levels up until recently. For about 400 years, human beings have been enjoying more and more sugar. Once Europeans discovered tropical trading routes and set up cheap slave labor economies to raise sugar cane, sugar became more and more available to the average person. Indeed, sugar quickly became the food of the poor. It was said that the entire working class of the British Isles lived on jam and sugar tea during the Industrial Revolution. As a prime colonial power, The British once claimed the title of biggest sugar consumers. Per year, the average Brit consumed four pounds in 1704, 18 pounds in 1800, and 90 pounds in 1901. However, once they got rolling as a country, Americans weren't far behind. Per year, the average American consumed six pounds of sugar in 1822, 40 pounds in 1900, 90 pounds by the 1920s, and there was a subsequent drop due to the Great Recession in World War II, but 90 pounds per person again by the 1980s. Then, they really took off. By 1999, the U.S. reached peak sugar consumption of nearly 108 pounds, or 49 kilograms, of sugar per person per year. Between 1980 and 1999, Americans ate more sugar, and obesity rates got higher. But then something changed. Our sugar consumption actually started to decrease. Interestingly, since 1999 through 2013, most recent data available, intake of added sugar has actually declined by 18%, or as much as 22%, depending on the data. This drop has brought Americans' current added sugar intake back down to 1987 levels. And during this time, total carbohydrate intake has dropped as well makes sense as this was the dawn of the low-carb phenomenon. Nevertheless, though sugar and carb intake have declined over those 14 years, adult obesity has continued to climb from 31% of the American population in 1999 to 38% as of 2013. Diabetes diagnoses have continued to climb as well, which we'll address in a moment. Now you can see a graph of the sugar intake versus obesity prevalence in the U.S. between 1980 and 2013, online in today's article. So, despite lowering sugar intake by nearly 20% over a 14-year period, obesity and diabetes rates have continued to climb. Along with sex, ethnic, and socioeconomic differences in obesity rates, this suggests that changing body sizes and compositions is probably a complex, multi-factored phenomenon. The bottom line here, No single thing, including sugar, causes obesity. Many factors work together to contribute to a consistent energy or calorie surplus, which ultimately leads to fat gain. And one of those things is often sugar, but not always, and not alone. All right, that's question number one. Let's move on to our second question. Does sugar cause us to gain weight or fat? So we can't unequivocally blame sugar for increased obesity rates but many of us are still wondering whether sugar is a gateway to fat gain. Seems logical. Carb and sugar consumption are the main drivers of insulin release, and insulin's job is to help store nutrients, including fat. Therefore, it seems obvious. Carbs and sugar cause fat gain, right? Once again, our scientist friends reveal that it's a bit more complicated than that. Let's take a look at a couple of studies that explore this question. Study number one, how do carbs, sugar, and or insulin release affect body fat. In 2015, a small pilot study was conducted by Dr. Kevin Hall to investigate the carb, sugar, insulin model of obesity. What happens if we keep calories and protein the same, but play with the dietary sugar and fat levels? Here's how the study worked. 19 participants had to live in a metabolic ward where the researchers controlled virtually everything about how they lived, what they ate, and so forth. The participants tried both lower carbohydrate and lower fat diets. They followed each diet for two weeks, separated by a two to four week period during which they returned to normal eating. All participants spent the first five days of either the low carb or low fat diets following a baseline plan of 50% carbs, 35% fat, and 15% protein. This was done so that all participants started on an even playing field with an intake that virtually matches what the average American eats. Each participant also had to exercise on a treadmill for one hour every day for the full two weeks to make sure the physical activity levels were consistent and equal. After the first five days, both groups had their calories reduced by 30% from the baseline diet, 1,918 calories versus 2,740 calories. They then ate the lower calorie diet for six days. With both diets, energy intake, i.e. calories, and protein were kept the same only carbs and fat went up or down. So for lower carbohydrate, it was 101 grams of protein, 21% of CALS, 108 grams of fat, 50% of CALS, and 140 grams of carbohydrate, or 29% of CALS. The lower fat diet was 105 grams of protein, 21% of calories, 17 grams of fat, 8% of CALS, and 352 grams of carbohydrate, or 71% of the calories. So let's take a closer look at how much the study participants actually ate. On the lower carbohydrate diet, of their carbohydrates, 37 grams was sugar. This means that 8% of all calories were coming from sugar. This is much less than the average American eats. On the lower fat diet, of their carbohydrates, 170 grams was sugar. This means that 35% of all their calories were coming from sugar. That is a lot of sugar. So what happened? Well, in terms of insulin production, on the lower carbohydrate diet, people produced 22% less insulin throughout the day. The lower fat diet didn't change the insulin output at all since it had the same total carbs and even slightly more sugar than the baseline diet. In terms of body weight, people on the lower carbohydrate diet lost four pounds of body weight and 1.16 pounds of body fat. People on the lower fat diet lost three pounds of body weight, which included 1.29 pounds of body fat. Now keep in mind, body weight loss doesn't necessarily equal body fat loss. We can also lose body weight from losing glycogen, water, and or body protein, and that's exactly what happened to the people on the lower carb diet. They lost more overall body weight, but actually lost less fat, though a difference of 0.13 pounds is irrelevant in the big picture, who would notice that? Meanwhile, the folks on the lower-fat diet lost more body fat but less total weight because their body was busy burning fat, rather than glycogen or lean body mass, to meet its calorie needs. After these results were in, the researchers then ran validated mathematical models that showed over longer periods of time, say longer than six months, the fat loss between the two groups would be roughly equal. In other words, there was no particular physiological advantage to either diet in terms of body weight nor body fat loss over the longer term. Okay, moving on to study number two. For this second study, the game got hardcore. Drop the carbs and sugar much lower for the lower carbohydrate group, just to make sure the minimal differences found in the first study hadn't been because the carbs and sugars weren't low enough. And here's how this second study worked. 17 overweight or obese people participated. First, they followed a high-carb but calorically-restricted baseline diet for 4 weeks, with 25% of calories from sugar. Then, they spent 4 weeks on a very low-carb ketogenic diet, with 2% of calories from sugar, with equal calories to the baseline diet. So what happened? The researchers found that everyone lost weight and fat throughout the study. However, when subjects switched from the high-carb, 25% sugar baseline diet, to the ketogenic 2% sugar diet, fat loss actually slowed down for the first few weeks. Much like the previous study, this happened because as people's bodies adapted to the ketogenic diet, they were more likely to break down fat-free mass and protein stores, in other words, muscle. Thus, weight loss went faster during the ketogenic phase thanks to losing glycogen and water. But body fat loss was actually less during this phase, though not tremendously so, and it likely wouldn't make any significant difference over time. Overall, the researchers stated that based on the current evidence, as well as their validated mathematical models, long-term body fat loss would likely be very similar between the high-sugar, high-carb diet and the low-sugar, low-carb diet. In other words, the amount of sugar didn't seem to influence the results. In the end, these, plus other studies, seem to support the idea that sugar, carbohydrate intake, and or insulin alone probably aren't the main drivers of weight gain. Other research comparing low-carb diets to low-fat diets has found similar results. The same results have also been found with meta-analyses, big reviews of other studies. These types of data are considered among the most robust as they explore a lot of experiments from a much broader perspective, pulling in evidence from dozens or even hundreds of studies to try and draw conclusions. And also, the same results have been found with systematic reviews, methodologically rigorous comparisons and critical analyses of other studies. These types of reviews are also considered useful because they take a skeptical perspective looking for errors. There have been at least 20 controlled inpatient feeding studies where protein and calories are kept equal, but carbs are varied from 20% to 75% of total calories, and sugar intakes ranged significantly as well. Of all these studies, none of them found any truly significant differences in body fat levels when people are eating either high-carb and high-sugar or low-carb and low-sugar diets. In other words, as long as protein and calories were equal, the amount of sugar people ate didn't make a difference. There have been at least 12 other systematic reviews and meta-analyses published over the past 10 plus years on long-term low-carb diets, which are invariably also low-sugar diets. Of these 12 reviews, 3 were in favor of low-carb, 3 were in favor of non-low-carb comparisons, in other words, low-fat, Mediterranean, vegan, low-glycemic index, and so forth, and 6 were neutral, meaning they concluded that various approaches can be equally valid and effective. (laughs) So, you might be thinking, okay, but how might sugar play a role? Well, sweet foods may increase energy intake. In 2013, a review commissioned by the World Health Organization investigated how sugar affected fat gain. It found that increasing sugar intake can increase body weight, and lowering sugar intake can decrease body weight, but only by changing energy balance, not by any physiological or metabolic effect of sugar itself. In other words, if we eat more sugary foods, we might be eating more energy, i.e. calories, overall. Sweet foods are often processed and highly palatable. This is especially true because most high sugar foods are refined, tasty, and hard to stop eating. We digest and absorb the energy they contain quickly and easily. They overstimulate the reward pleasure centers in our brain and we tend to overeat them. Plus, hidden sugars in processed foods like yogurt, granola and juice, or even so-called health foods or fitness foods can add up fast without us even realizing it. These foods and our brain's response to them, not the sugar itself, can often lead to overconsumption. So the sugar itself may be less of a culprit than the fact that many of us just can't quit it, just one gummy bear or sip of soda. Now, you might be thinking, what else is going on besides sugar consumption? Well, most of our clients who struggle with their weight, body fat, eating habits, and health tell us it's not just about the food. There are many factors involved. Stress, sleep, metabolic health, lifestyle, social environment, and so forth. Sugar alone does not explain the complexity of our body's health, function, fat percentage, nor weight metabolism is complicated. And, as always, remember that people vary in response to particular diets. Some people do better with a higher carbohydrate and lower fat. Some do better the other way around. This is likely due to genetic differences, individual satiety differences from fats versus carbs, personal preferences, and possibly even differences in the bacterial populations in our GI tracts. And the studies we just mentioned don't provide hard and fast rules that will always apply to everyone. This is especially true given that many study populations were small and probably similar in terms of age, sex, ethnicity, and other important factors that can affect our physiological response to a given diet. But they do indicate that sugar is not some kind of unusually evil substance that causes weight gain or prevents fat loss. Okay, moving on to question number three. Does sugar cause diabetes? Diabetes is a disease where we can't properly regulate the sugar in our blood. It seems logical then that eating more sugar might increase our risk for diabetes, particularly type two diabetes, known as adult onset diabetes. Unlike type one diabetes, which typically starts in childhood and is considered an autoimmune disease, in which our own bodies attack healthy cells of our pancreas, which normally produces insulin. Type two diabetes typically starts later in life and among other factors, is linked to long-term food and exercise behaviors. Type 2 diabetes generally starts with insulin resistance or impaired glucose control. This means that over time, insulin is less and less able to do its job of moving glucose into our cells for safe storage. Your doctor might test this with various blood tests, such as an A1C test, which measures how much sugar is being carried around in our hemoglobin, a blood protein. Type 2 diabetes, as well as other metabolic diseases, are also related to how much fat we have in our livers and in and around other organs, such as our hearts and kidneys. There does seem to be a link between how much refined sugar we eat and insulin resistance. Eating too much sugar can also increase fat accumulation in the liver. For example, a recent study found that for every 150 calorie increase in daily sugar intake, essentially a 12-ounce soda or 37 grams, corresponded with a 1.1% increased risk for diabetes. The risk I just mentioned might sound scary, but it's important to keep it in perspective. Other research has shown that losing 7% body fat and doing about 20 minutes of daily physical activity decreased diabetes risk by 58%. And many other studies have corroborated those findings, telling us that losing a little weight or fat and doing a little more exercise consistently will significantly lower our diabetes risk. In fact, a recent meta-analysis provided some compelling information on diabetes risk. 60 to 90% of type 2 diabetes is related to obesity or weight gain, not sugar intake. Having a significant amount of excess body fat or weight can increase diabetes risk by 90 times. If people who are in the obese category lose about 10% of their initial body weight, they dramatically improve their blood glucose control. And weight management, not sugar reduction, appears to be the most important therapeutic target for most individuals with type 2 diabetes. This makes sense if we understand how adipose, or fat, tissue works. It's a biologically active tissue that secretes hormones and other cell signals. If we have too much of it, adipose tissue can disrupt metabolic health, including how we regulate and store blood sugar. Now, some researchers have suggested that fructose, a particular type of simple sugar, aka monosaccharide, found in fruit as well as many processed foods, might play a special role in diabetes. We know that fructose is digested, absorbed, and used in specific ways in our bodies. So does that mean that fructose might have unique properties that could increase our diabetes risk? Let's take a look. One meta-analysis looked at 64 substitution trials, in which fructose replaced another carbohydrate with no change in total calories, and 16 addition trials, where fructose was added to normal intake. In the trials where fructose was substituted for another carbohydrate, the average fructose intake was 102 grams per day. In the trials where fructose was added on top of the participant's normal intake, the average fructose intake was 187 grams per day. Compared to the average American fructose consumption of 49 grams per day, these are extraordinary intakes. To achieve those kinds of intakes would require up to 13 cups of ice cream or consumption of 10 cans of soda. Possible? Yes. Daily norm? Well, we sure hope not. A recent review paper summed up the state of the evidence on fructose nicely, essentially stating, the best quality evidence to date does not support the theory that fructose intake directly causes cardiometabolic diseases. The review added that fructose-containing sugars can lead to weight gain along with increases in cardiometabolic risk factors and disease, but only if those fructose-laden foods provide excess calories. Overall, research does suggest that a high intake of all sugar, including fructose, might slightly increase risk of diabetes development by itself, however, this research also indicates that most of this risk is due to the high sugar intake leading to excess calorie intake, and therefore increased body fat, which leads to inflammation, and ultimately insulin resistance. An absolutely immense amount of research consistently and strongly indicates that the main causes of diabetes are excess body fat, inadequate physical activity, and genetic predisposition. On that last note, we know that diabetes risk, as well as the risk of metabolic diseases and propensity to gain body fat, differs significantly by ethnic group or genetic subgroup. For instance, many groups of indigenous people are vastly more likely to struggle with these issues, as are people of African ancestry living in North America or people of South Asian ancestry. So your personal risk of these diseases also depends on where your ancestors came from, what genetic makeup they gave you, and or how that genetic makeup interacts with your environment. The bottom line here, managing your sugar intake is just one small tool in your diabetes fighting toolbox. However, far and away, the most useful tool is weight and body fat management, however you manage to accomplish it. Okay, moving on to question number four. Does sugar cause cardiovascular disease. The term cardiometabolic disease refers to a broad group of related diseases, like the type 2 diabetes we just mentioned, along with other diseases related to the complex phenomenon of metabolic disruption, changes in hormonal and cell signaling, inflammation, and an inability to regulate normal physiological processes like DNA repair. These diseases can appear in many organs or organ systems, When they hit the heart and our circulatory system of blood vessels, we call them cardiovascular disease. They show up as things like heart attacks, strokes, clogged arteries, and so forth. A heart attack or heart disease used to be a death sentence. With better treatment and new medications, people are surviving longer and living better with cardiovascular disease. Over the past 50 years or so, deaths from heart disease have declined by over 60%, despite sugar intake increasing by about 20 pounds per person per year, over that time, and by more than 30 pounds per person per year at the 1999 peak intake. Researchers estimate that about half of that 60% decrease might be from better medical care. The other half likely comes from reducing the risk factors, such as lowering blood pressure, smoking less, and lowering blood cholesterol levels. Of course, as we've seen, consuming more energy in the form of sugar can increase body fat, and because of its chemically active nature, more body fat definitely increases cardiovascular disease risk. So, eating a lot of sugar can certainly play a role. But cardiovascular disease, as with other metabolic diseases, is complex. It's not just one thing, it's all the things. It's how we live, how we work, how active we are, how stressed we are, what's in our environment, and the various other factors that influence our health. Indeed, if we look at the factors that we know for sure are related to the risk of metabolic disease, only about 3% of Americans uphold four essential healthy lifestyle behaviors consistently. In other words, not smoking, maintaining a healthy body weight, eating five or more servings of fruits and vegetables per day, and being physically active at least 30 minutes a day five times a week at a moderate intensity. On top of that, let's consider two other known preventative methods for metabolic disease, keeping stress levels moderate and sleeping well seven to nine hours per night consistently. Now we're probably at 1% of Americans. And once again, sugar intake is probably one piece of the puzzle, but it's just one piece and probably a very small one. Okay, let's move on to our last question. How much sugar is okay to eat? That's right, let's get real here. Sugar is not a health food. It doesn't nourish us. It doesn't add a lot of nutrient value. It doesn't give us any vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, antioxidants, fiber or water. Eating a lot of sugar doesn't make our bodies better, stronger, healthier, or more functional. Sugar doesn't add value, certainly not when compared to other foods or macronutrients like protein or omega-3 fatty acids. However, biology is complex. Diseases are complex too. We can't blame one chemical for all the health problems we have. Good health is neither created nor destroyed by a single food. Again, human beings are diverse, We vary wildly in all kinds of ways, including how much carbohydrates we need to thrive or perform well, how well we digest, absorb, and use sugars, as well as how effectively and safely we store or dispose of the excess, how sugar affects our appetite, hunger, fullness, and ability to stop eating it, how we feel about and behave around sugar, and how sugar spins our brain dials and gives us a sense of reward. So we can't say that X amount of sugar is always best for everyone, all the time, or that people should never eat any sugar. It just doesn't work that way. Some people might choose to cut out sugar completely. Some people might try to micromanage their intake down to the gram. Some people can just roll with a general eat less processed foods guideline and be fine. And some people do find that a low sugar, low carb, or even a ketogenic diet works for them while others thrive on high carb diets. Now that said, being aware of your sugar intake is probably a good idea. The 2015 to 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting sugar to 10% of your intake. So, for example, if you're consuming 2,000 calories per day, that would be approximately 200 calories from sugar, or 50 grams. All right, with all this being said, what does this all mean? Let's sum up what the science suggests. Sugars are basic biological molecules that our bodies use in many ways. Each person's response to sugar, whether physiological or behavioral, will be a little different. This goes for carbohydrates in general too. Sugar is not a health food, but sugar alone doesn't necessarily cause most chronic health problems like diabetes or cardiovascular diseases, which are multifactorial. Sugar is energy dense. If eaten in excess, like most foods, sugar can contribute to weight or fat gain. This weight or fat gain is probably mostly from the extra calories, not some special properties of sugars or carbohydrates in general, or insulin. Some people find it hard to stop eating sugar or sweet foods. This may also contribute to weight or fat gain, again, because of the extra energy intake. And lastly, we likely eat more sugar than we realize since it's hidden in so many food products. Now, for most people, cutting out sugar completely, trying to abide by rigid rules or basing dietary decisions on fear probably isn't sustainable or realistic. That's why at Precision Nutrition, we prefer a more balanced approach. So, here are some tips from us on what you can do. Number one, recognize that health concerns are more complex than a single smoking gun. The fitness and nutrition industry loves to say that one factor is responsible for everything, or that one magical food, magical workout, magical mantra will cure everything. It also loves to oversimplify and moralize. In other words, this is bad, this is good. You don't have to understand physiology to grasp the idea that things are complex. There are many factors that go into good health, athletic performance, physical function, and well-being. This means you should, number two, begin with fundamental behaviors. Sugar is one part in a much bigger puzzle. You can review the following checklist and see how many of these fundamental behaviors you do well and consistently. That means every day or most days, don't smoke, keep your alcohol intake moderate, Eat slowly and mindfully. Eat enough lean protein. Eat five or more servings of fruit and or vegetables per day, ideally colorful ones. Eat some healthy fats. Get some movement for at least 20 to 30 minutes a day. Get seven to nine hours of good quality sleep every night. Reduce your stress. Spend time with people you love and or people who support you. And do things that are meaningful and purposeful to you. These are all behaviors that we know for sure are health-promoting, and disease preventing. All right, number three, become aware of your overall energy balance. Take a clear-headed look at how much food you're eating for your body's needs and how much activity you're doing. Are you eating the right amount for your physiological requirements? If you're heavier or carrying more body fat than you prefer, maybe you need to adjust how much you're eating and or exercising. This may mean lowering your sugar intake and or it may mean eating a little less of other foods overall. Number four, become aware of what's in your food. Read labels. Sugar lives in processed foods, even foods you wouldn't expect, like salad dressings or frozen dinners. And then better than reading labels, ask how you can eat more foods without labels, like fruits and veggies, beans and legumes, nuts and seeds, meats and seafood, and so forth. Transitioning to less processed and less sweetened versions of various foods is a simple way to lower your sugar intake and get the benefits of better nutrient intake. Double win. Number five, maintain a healthy weight. There's no single healthy weight. Your weight may be higher than average, or it may be within a normal range. What is most important, however, is that this weight is healthy for you, which you'll know because all your indicators like blood work or athletic performance and recovery look good. If you think you need to lose a little weight or fat to look and feel and, or perform better, the good news is you don't often need to lose very much to see metabolic benefits. You don't have to be super lean. And in fact, Many people won't benefit from trying to do that anyway. Number six, be mindful of your overall eating patterns, habits, and perspectives. Consider, are you eating slowly and mindfully? Can you stop when you're satisfied? Are you using sugar-rich foods as a treat, and how often? Do you feel deprived if you don't get to have sugar? If you have a sugary food, can you stop eating it when you've had enough? And is there an enough with some foods? How does sugar fit into your life and overall habits? And is that working for you? Number seven, keep it in perspective. Add treats in moderation. Around here at PN, we love to keep it real. We like treats, junk food, and tasty stuff just as much as anyone else. Whether that's a glass of wine, a bowl of ice cream, or a hot dog at a ball game. We just keep the portions moderate and don't have treats for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. For most people. A little bit of sugar fits just fine into an overall healthy diet pattern. If you're looking for numbers, we suggest you shoot for including treats or other discretionary indulgences at 10 to 20% of your meals. If you eat three meals a day for a week, that means about two to four of those 21 meals might include something fun or less nutritious. And number eight, ask yourself what works for you and what doesn't. If you struggle with sugar, for instance, if it makes you feel ill or if you feel like you can't eat sweet foods in appropriate amounts, then it's probably not a good food for you. Try experimenting with lowering your sugar intake gradually, for instance, by making simple substitutions like drinking water or seltzer instead of soda, and see what happens. Look for foods that you love and that love you back, and make you feel good and perform well and give you sustained and long-lasting energy that keep your moods level and that keep you feeling normal as an eater. Number nine, if you're a coach, keep it real and keep it positive. Don't scare your clients, don't lecture them, don't moralize. Help them, learn from them, understand them. Although research may say on average, low carb is more effective than other dietary strategies long-term, or that sugar by itself is not addictive, or any other innumerable statistics, your clients are real people. They are not averages. Each individual's preferred approach, unique circumstances, and personal experiences has to be carefully considered and taken into account when working together. Go slowly, step-by-step. Make sure your client can actually do what needs to be done. Fit the dietary strategy to the client and not the client to the dietary strategy. And number 10, use data. Track your health and physical performance indicators. Schedule regular medical checkups. And look at stuff like how you feel, how your mood is, how you sleep, how your blood work looks, and how well you recover from workouts and life in general. Follow the evidence, and if everything looks stellar, keep doing whatever you're doing. Alright, this has been Bryce from Precision Nutrition reading today's article, The Surprising Truth About Sugar. Here's everything you need to know about what it does to your body. By Brian St. Pierre and Krista Scott-Dixon. You can read the article online yourself, plus see a number of the graphs we mentioned in the article at precisionnutrition.com forward slash truth dash about dash sugar. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.
0: Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move and live better yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.